Hello everybody and welcome to Sound of Play. Every Wednesday in Sound of Play we bring you some of our and your favourite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. And joining me, Leon Cox, in Sound of Play 265 is listener and recently blog contributor Daniel J. Glass. Welcome to Sound of Play. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Dan, you are a licensed clinical psychologist. Exactly. So I'm working in private practice right now, uh, working for a big group. Um, I have been in research and academia before, and I'd like to go back there one day. Teaching as well. Those are all passions of mine. Uh, writing, uh, publications, things like that. But right now I'm doing mostly applied stuff. So someone so smart and intelligent and, and, and learned, uh, you've got no time for these stupid childish video games, right? Oh well, you know, I I wouldn't say those things about me, so I guess I I guess I do have time for them, and uh, it's 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 hard to fit it in. You know, I think um, getting a switch really helped. Um, 
Yeah. It's just hard. You know, I've got two young kids. It's hard to find time. I'm wow. sure a lot of yeah. uh, listeners and, and, and team members know what that's like. And uh, oh, yeah, yeah. When, when you can do it right in the, um, you know, right before bed and then put the switch on the nightstand, you know, um, I think it, it really helps get a little bit of gaming into the, into the old schedule. Good to know. And no doubt from your selections, we'll get to know a bit more about your tastes in both games and the music that comes from them. We should say, uh, I'll plug this again at the end, uh, listener, we do have a website in case you don't know and you only listen to our podcasts. If you should uh, you know, be so, uh, have a, a spare moment to check out canarince.com. We have all kinds of articles going back all the way to the beginning to 2011 on there. But quite recently, uh, Dan produced one for us, which is uh, an amusing and but also uh, with its yeah, basis in actual Psychology. Tell us a little bit about Luigi and his fears. Right. So uh, this was inspired originally by a Chris Kohler article um, on Kotaku. It was a review of Luigi's Mansion 3 where he sort of mentioned offhand as a, as a bit of a joke that um, Luigi is, never seems to get used to the fact that he's around <laughs> ghosts. He's always afraid yeah. of ghosts. It's, it's part of his character. And, you know, it was sort of a, it was sort of a, a one-off line. But it got me to thinking as a psychologist, why would that be, right? Why is this this man who has so much experience with ghosts react with the same level of sort of fright every time he sees a ghost? And, and, and so from the perspective of clinical psychology, this is not actually all that unusual. I've worked with people before who have anxiety disorders. I do a lot of work with obsessive compulsive disorder and with phobias and with generalized anxiety, uh, a lot with anxiety. And one of the things that... Um, that you hear a lot from people um, when you tell them that the best type of treatment for anxiety or, or fear is exposure therapy, will say, um, they'll say, well, I've, I've been around, I, I've flown in planes my whole life. I, I've flown in planes for work for 30 years and I'm still afraid of mm -hmm. planes. So, so this exposure yeah. therapy doesn't work for me. And it turns out that uh, if you actually were to watch them go on a plane, they're, they're not... They're not doing it in the same way that you would if you were going to do exposure therapy for for a fear. They might, uh, mm. you know, take a, take a benzodiazepine. They might clench the seat rest really tightly or close their eyes, pretend they're on a beach somewhere, do relaxation techniques. They might breathe funny. They might do all these things to really avoid engaging with the fear and sitting with the fear. And so that was, yeah. uh, you know, mm. you can, you can uh, check out the blog post if you're interested, listeners, but that was the, the basis for it, that Luigi engages in a lot of these emotion-driven behaviors rather than really letting himself get used to the fear. Okay. Now, as a, a life, well, a lifelong, uh, diagnosed in about 1987, generalized anxiety disorder sufferer, I'll try not to use this as a free hour-long session um, <laughs> <laughs> with you, uh, but I am interested in uh, with uh, with the concept of uh, the supernatural. Uh, obviously, not within that's not particularly within the realms of psychology in itself. But uh, I personally, I have absolutely no uh, belief in ghosts whatsoever. Mm -hmm, sure. But if it did turn out mm -hmm. that there were spectral presences based on former human beings who are alive sure how long do you think it would take us to cope with that concept would would we kind of embrace that notion fairly quickly if it was proven if if, if ghostbusters happened mm -hmm. right right so there was irrefutable <laughs> yes. evidence uh do you think that do you think as a as a species we would collectively get over our fear of the supernatural would we, by that we'd probably lose a great source of of fun and entertainment if if they if it actually 
prove that ghosts were real? It's a very interesting question. A little bit beyond my pay grade, but I, I do spend time sure. thinking about some of these <laughs> sorts of things. Yeah. And um, right, I'm trying to think of basically what are the um, the scientific revelations uh, yeah, in the past any, that really yeah, are comparable yeah. to that. Um, mm. Flight, nothing, <laughs> I suppose, maybe? Flight, like, right, so, yeah, right, perhaps. Um, and it's hard to quite think of an analog where it's like people have suspected or people presumed that something was there and yeah. it sort of there was no scientific uh, evidence right. for it and then eventually there was but you can think of change things, might be right, I was I was thinking something something <laughs> like that or something that involved um you know there's definitely anxiety around that sure but, uh, <laughs> yes yes despite the fact that it is scientifically proven because you can't literally show it to someone in a box right then there's still people who don't believe in right. it right you can't can't uh, capture it in a proton pack so if yeah. you had uh <laughs> i'm just thinking of the idea of um what it would mean let's say if 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 ghosts turned out to be sort of uh empirically uh validated phenomena then yeah. it would take a certain form that you know would as you're saying kind of um make us look back at a lot of the other depictions of ghosts in popular media and go well that's not quite right anymore, is it? Yeah, yeah. I've always thought it was interesting, um, and I think that uh, I saw this in a Terry Pratchett book as well. The idea that ghosts are often dressed when you see them in uh, in media and yeah. movies, right? The idea that yeah. the clothes died at the same time that the people died. I thought that <laughs> yeah. I thought that's funny, um, and, and of course the um, well, I, I could go on about this all day, but I think really um, the the question is one that. I would love to be able to answer with a little more authority, but I would say that it would screw everything up about the way we yeah. the way we think about psychology, uh, the way life we think death, yes, obviously. life and death, um, neuroscience, um, everything, and, and that is why um, yeah. If if you happen to be a person of science, um, and and I am as well, uh, the more you learn about the brain, the less likely it seems that ghosts could exist. But having said yes. that. I've gone through grad school and I've got uh, a lot of colleagues in the psychology field who uh, allude that they b still believe in ghosts after learning all about hmm. the neuroscience of the human brain. And I always think, oh, interesting. You sort of came out the other side <laughs> yeah. with that set of beliefs. But yeah, hey, hey, that's yeah, right. well, it's, it's you, you know, you, you find people who are deeply trained in science who are also um, religious, religious, you know, yeah, it's absolutely. a similar thing. For sure. um, this is fascinating, completely irrelevant and off topic, but you know, I've got a great idea for a podcast now. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> let's go back to your opening track uh, with which we open the show. And it's from King's Quest V, which, you know, sounds like a high numbered sequel, but that game already is already 30 years old. So uh, does this give us a little insight as to the games that you loved growing up or does it just so happen that uh, it's a piece of music that stayed with you for some reason. No, that was uh, a big presence growing up. I was a big point and click guy, especially a Sierra guy, and mm -hmm. I think it just it just happened that way. It was just uh, around the time that um, I was really getting into uh, you know software. The CD-ROM drive was a big thing, and mm -hmm. um, and if if anyone remembers the advent of the CD-ROM drive, they were. Um, there was a lot of these uh, software packs, these CD-ROM packs that you could get for, you know, I don't know how much they were, $20 or whatever, and you would get a whole bunch of different software in it. Um, my recollection was that King's Quest VI was a pack-in um, with a CD-ROM drive. So um, my father got it, the, C the first CD-ROM drive uh, that we ever owned for his computer, and 
King's Quest VI came on the uh, came on a disc with it, and um, I was just really captivated by that game. I thought that was a uh, a beautiful, fun. Um, sort of challenging kind of game. And I've been playing games, you know, sort of those CGA uh, arcade style games uh, on DOS computers for, for years. But this one um, really caught me. And uh, there was a song in that game, if anyone remembers this, that they were, it was called Girl in, in the Tower. And it was a, um, first of all, the the song appeared as Cosima's theme in, in King's Quest VI. Every time this character, Cosima, who was, you know, the, the princess in the tower that the main character was trying to uh, save, she would come on the screen and there would be this uh, this motif and this this theme and it was played on electric piano and it was, it was very nice, you know, whatever. Um, and then at the end of the game, there was this uh, sort of 90s love ballad uh, duet, hmm. Girl in the Tower, um, by uh, Mark Siebert or Seibert, unfortunately, I don't, I don't know the pronunciation, but um, hmm. he was the, the composer on the game, especially with this this song. They, they really tried to have a push to have Girl in the Tower be a, a radio smash hit. So... Uh, I think the story was that they included some um, documentation in the game that sort of said, call your local radio stations. Here's here's all the radio stations we've sent uh, this song to. Call them and, um, and bug them and ask them to play this song. And I don't think it worked, and I don't think radio stations like that. But that was the song. And, and um, uh, I later went back and played King's Quest V, which... I loved at the time. King's Quest V holds up so much less well than six does. Yeah, they fixed a lot of the issues in six that were there in five in terms of the uh, the quality of the the voiceover artists and some of the way the way the puzzles worked and how easy it was to get yourself into a, a sort of a stuck state where you you've lost an item yeah. and can't get it back. Um, Sierra but, famous for instant deaths and 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 bottlenecks like that. Yes, um, right, and. Uh, King's Quest V did ha- have the same the, the character Cosima. She showed up in there, and um, it was is actually only recently that I, I was watching a playthrough of this game that I actually realized that I liked the Cosima theme better in, in King's Quest V than I did in Six. And it's it's essentially the same tune. There's uh, it's a little bit different in how it plays, but the instrumentation I think was nicer. Uh, it's got the, the version that that we'll play that we've played here has a um i think a it's a reorchestration for a sort of a king's quest soundtracks or something like that and, and yeah and it's yeah. it's lovely they, they've used i think a it sounds like a classical guitar and nylon string guitar for the the lead um yeah. melody there the original one of course was not that in the game and you know you could get the yeah. whatever the ad lib or the i don't know the sound yeah. blast or whatever whatever you were playing it on right i i think that the um the lead instrument, it kind of has a little bit of almost a, a dulcimer sound to it. You know, of course, it's um, mm. it's synthesized. Um, and I, I like that. And, and if you like this song, I would recommend um, anyone check out the uh, in different versions of this song. See if they can uh, find the one with the uh, the original instrumentation from the game. Um, yeah. And I, there's kind of a more of aggressive attack there uh, that makes it sound like maybe like a hammer or dulcimer or something like that. And, and I just thought it was, it was very pretty. I like how there's sort of, you know, what they would call... Rubato is it in music theory where they're sort of um, they're not quite playing in time and it's kind of slowing down and speeding up. It's uh-huh. a little more fluid. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was a, a very pretty tune. Nice. And yes, there are also, there's an NES version out there somewhere. I remember uh, that. I, I messed with that a little while uh, when I was a kid, me and the my friend next door. Um, not the best way to play the game, but a curio, if, yeah, curio if you're yeah. interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, and because the Amiga was so popular in Europe, uh, a lot of these uh, PC games 
uh, got ported over as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I never got into the Sierra stuff. I was a, I was a LucasArts uh, guy. Yeah, uh, I love those and games. some of the English mm-hmm. English companies as well, like Revolution. But um, great. yeah, good pick, nice one. I th- I'm not sure we've ever featured uh, his work before. Um, he, and yeah. he's an interesting like guy. Yeah. yeah. Did you did you did you do any research on Mark? Well, Siebert just looking at his CV, it looks like he kind of finished doing soundtracks in the mid '90s, having started in the mid late '80s. Yeah, that sounds and, about right. And uh, yeah. he's an audio. He was a he was an executive producer into the early 2000s, but then the trail goes cold. The trail um, goes cold. And he's not to be confused with a, a German singer of the same name who was a young guy, no. who's sort of a. Uh, and and the other thing that was interesting about this Mark, Mark Siebert or Seibert uh, was that he was in a uh, Christian rock band before he was in before he was doing Sierra stuff, and it was called Omega Sunrise. And I'd never looked into this guy. This was a man whose name I have seen for fifteen years or you know eighteen years of my life. Never really looked into him until yesterday and started looking around. And you know I'm not a uh, a huge. Uh, fan of christian rock per se however no. if you're interested in music of that era you know late 70s early 80s type music it's not bad you you know it's different than sort of the the late 90s christian rock and the right. sort of um you might think of and it's got this um there's a, you know some of the songs sound a little bit like uh brian adams or a little bit of journey in there or yeah even a little <laughs> bit of uh kind of uh, the sort of r&b uh of the 80s so interesting Cool. After our first community pick, we've got a bit of classic rock from a, a more recent point and click type game. Uh, but in between times, as usual, we have some selections from the Cane and Rinse community. Head over to the forum, canerince.com slash forum, find the sound of play folder and post your picks in there. This one is from Reprobate Gamer, who says one of my favorite series. This was a lighthearted FPS that firmly remains on my where's the next one list. A remaster would be acceptable as well. The plot was patchy from non-existent in the first game, but the gameplay was the thing, and this was something Time Splitters nailed. Plus, you could create your own levels with an in-game level editor. It's from this that I've picked this song, a glorious example of the soundtrack that series composer Graham Norgate managed to pay homage to all the eras and locales in history that were the locations for the levels. As with many others in the series, it starts slow and builds an element of anxiety, mirroring the level's own pacing. Yeah, this is Create Your Level Tuned. It's called TS2 Virtual Tile Set, sexily enough.
from Time Splitters 2 then, Free Radical Designs, spiritual successor to Goldeneye, if you remember. Uh, I bought the Xbox, original Xbox version of this for the reason that it had a hard drive, of course, which meant that of the three versions, PS2, GameCube and Xbox, it made most sense to have a level editor on a system with a hard drive built in. Did I ever create any levels, though? No, of course I didn't. Uh, but I do remember really loving the first level of this game because it was effectively a a kind of HD remake with a decent frame rate of the famous opening damn level of GoldenEye 007. And even though this game came out in 2002, just five years after GoldenEye, I was already nostalgic for GoldenEye because it had provided as for so many other people, hundreds of hours of fun in single and multiplayer. So when I played that first level of Time Splitters 2, and I'd skipped Time Splitters 1, by the way, it was multiplayer only PS2 launch game, and I didn't get a PS2 at launch. I was, I was just like, wow, this is so cool having this much better looking GoldenEye game uh, on my Xbox. But then uh, each level, as I progressed through the game, I found each level was a little less interesting than the previous one Ooh. to the point that by the back end of the game i was like mm, yeah this ain't no golden eye <laughs> but it did have a great multiplayer suite i just never it was just beyond that time i don't know if you've got this in your gaming past dan where there was a kind of era beyond which the multiplayer the local multiplayer kind of faded away as your friends or you sort of started focusing on different things did you ever have a kind of a local game party scene as a kid yeah, you know, it never grew beyond uh, two people. Me, me, and my uh, my friend that I grew up with, and uh, I actually nice. have a gap in my uh, console upbringing, if you will, uh, after the sixteen bit yeah. era. Basically, um, uh, mm. I moved on to uh, computer gaming just because um, my friend had a sixty four, you know, had a Nintendo sixty four rather, yeah. uh, and we we played that a little bit. Um, but uh, I never got one of those systems, or you know, a PlayStation, or anything else uh, up until the xbox 360 so all right. that I, I missed all that stuff and it's kind of sad because uh a lot of that stuff is kind of hard to go back to uh these Very days so, yeah um but yeah after the the 16-bit era um yeah i wasn't doing much multiplayer and i'm afraid that gaming for me ever since has been more of a, a solo activity yeah you got to be in the right mind especially if it's kind of competitive online gaming or even if it's uh, kind of co-op stuff, you've still got to be up for that sort of constant level of communication and engagement. Um, it can be a bit bit less relaxing and a bit more tiring, but it can be a lot of fun, of course, uh, if you get the right people together and you're not just playing with jerks, uh, randoms. Uh, if you manage to get a good co-op game with, with a team of pals teaming up against, I don't know, Left 4 Dead or Tom Clancy's A Division or something like that, it's... Uh, it can make an evening absolutely fly by, in my experience. I would love to, and I'd, I'd love to get into that scene a little bit more, um, in one way or the other, eventually. Hmm, cool. Uh, but in the meantime, solo gaming style, you've been point and clicking, seems like, for uh, most of your gaming life, because your next selection, I mentioned uh, that I was into the games of Revolution after the... Uh, after your first track from King's Quest. And we did cover the very first Broken Sword, The Shadow of the Templars, back in Cana Rince issue 243. Uh, a series, I thought, I, I want to say I love that series, but actually I kind of tapped out after the second one. I've never played the Xbox One, the third one, or the fourth or the fifth. 
But this is from the fifth one, which is a relatively, although it's now frighteningly seven years old. Oh, geez. But Broken Sword 5, uh, The Serpent's Curse, was was the most, uh, is it? I think it's, yeah, it's the most recent Broken Sword adventure so far, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it, yeah, it seems like the, the picks I have are largely from point and clicks. I think I actually... Um, for the most part, stopped playing point and clicks once I sort of got back into the more recent console generations and sort of moved on to more modern gaming. Yeah. But I, there's just something I, I, I like about uh, the thought of, of point and clicks, at least. Sometimes if I think about actually playing them, what I'm thinking of is a lot of sitting around and fidgeting while the character moves from one side of the screen to the yeah. other or a lot of yeah. downtime. Uh, but I just have a, a so much nostalgia for that style of game and so i kick-started the uh the fifth broken sword game oh, okay um yeah. just because uh not because i grew up with the broken sword series i had played them all and i just really liked them and i thought you know i want to i want to make this uh, a genre of game that really um you know is, is really still viable and i want to show people it's still viable and so i put down some money for that kickstarter mm. and it was a it was a pretty good game i think it was in many ways back to back to basics for the series yeah. um the third game was sort of uh i don't know these direct control as opposed to a point and click um and uh there's a lot of box pushing and you know really took the the graphics yeah. the graphical style in a different direction yeah. um fourth game i think a, a little bit back to basics but mm. still not didn't quite look the same didn't have the same feel so the fifth one even though they used uh 3d models they tried to make it cell shaded look 2d and Right. I feel like they they kind of uh, tapped a lot of that nostalgia from the first couple games. This was uh, this particular piece uh, yeah. that plays in the game. It's it's a song that plays in. Um, I don't think it's no spoiler to say that in the intro there is a there is a murder victim, and um, when you at some point in the game go into his house, this is playing on a, a phonograph. Um, yeah. uh, it's supposed to be the band that he that this character was in oh, in late sixties, early seventies, whatever. So right. it's got a kind of a early 70s vibe to it yes um it's supposed to be i think they've mentioned it they, they refer to it as a psychedelic band although mm. um you could think of it maybe as the the european psychedelic scene that maybe lasts into the 70s and uh mm. you know wasn't quite the, the stereotypical kind of acid rock sound no. and um yeah i heard it and i think they had a filter on it that made it sound like it was coming through a record yes. player so Got so it. when i yeah. first you know the first couple seconds i'm like oh what's that's a classic rock song i'm not familiar mm -hmm. with and i you know it fooled me for a second and yeah uh, i had to look it up and yeah so I, I don't really there's no there's not much information about this song because it's credited to the in-game band i managed they, to find out a bit about oh, please. the uh about the 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 composer so barrington falloons the australian behind the music for most of the broken sword series as far as as far as i know and according to the credits for this song he was involved in this so even though his his normal stock in trade is the classical stuff. He, I think he was best known for his over here for his music for the Inspector Morse TV series, uh, as well as Broken Sword. But this is also credited to Thomas Luis de Victoria and Miles Gilderdale. So presumably there's uh, maybe one of those is the vocalist. I don't know. Um, but yes, uh, a, a that there's quite a few. There's quite a long and interesting history of fake bands in in video games from uh the the german the fake german beatles in the wolfenstein games uh all the all the various ones in the grand theft auto games and yeah this adds this definitely is is a worthy addition to that canon um and yeah i gotta say i listened to this first and like as it starts i was like hmm and uh, and i read some of the comments on the youtube uh link 
for the song and it was all like I, I yeah i kind of hated this at first but now i love it <laughs> and it's very much got that it's got that going on it's like it, it, at first it seems quite cheesy and a little bit kind of hackneyed but then as it mm-hmm. keeps going and and kind of builds up it is it yeah it's um it's quite a joy i think yeah and i i think i think you're right that that's kind of the point right this yeah. this character is sort of portrayed as somebody who would be in a band like that right that's that's a little bit corny yeah you know? Let's enjoy it. Jasmine is the name of the song. Oh, <laughs> 
from Broken Sword 5, The Serpent's Curse, from back in 2013, which our guest Dan kickstarted. Did you, uh, was it episodic? I have a feeling it was released in chunks. Is that right? I think this might have been one that was uh, released all at one time, but I can't say 100% because I played it as soon as it came out and I haven't um, messed with it since. Hmm. Um, I do remember sort of getting all the updates and I remember one day it was available. So I'm going to lean toward that, but Mm. I I could be wrong. My memory is not, (laughs) it's no longer infallible. Uh, Same. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Jasmine. Uh, yeah, sort of modelled after. I suppose I was thinking about um, what's the song that they use for Top Gear, Jessica by the Allman Brothers. It's not quite like that because it's a vocal track, but it's got that sort of seventies rock. Yeah, you know, it reminded me of the James Gang a little bit, Funk Forty Nine. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know that there's 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 a lot of influences that you could sort of take, and I think that uh, it's sort of supposed to be a melange of those kind of bands of yeah. that era. Yeah. That makes sense. All right, our next community pick, a complete change of genre and tone, as we like to do on Sound of Play. This is from Simon Sloth, who says, It's a shame I can't describe the moment this song plays without massively spoiling the game. If I did, a newcomer to the game might scoff at the fact I shed a tear in that moment, because on paper, it's ridiculously absurd, like everything else in the game. This is Emil Sacrifice from the first Nier.
from near uh, replicant i think rather than the other one it's confusing because there were two near games that one for, per system we covered the xbox 361 which was the one we got in the west back in cana rinse 111 and uh, that tune is by keichi okabe kakuru ishihama and or Keigo Haishi and or Takafumi Nishimura. Uh, have you managed to, in your modern era of gaming, catch up with the wacky world of Nier, Kavia's peculiar world of Nier? Yeah, you know, I, I played Automata. I played, I, I loved it. I only got a third of the way through the game. That is, I finished mm, it once. Just three endings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I finished the, one of the endings, but I was uh, borrowing it from a library. You can get playstation oh, yeah. games in the in the library where i used to live can't get mm. it anymore we moved so i was never able to go back and finish the the game properly mm. i loved it i love the music and i love this song as well it's got the same just the pathos the the the, yeah. the beautiful the, the cello and the way she's singing the sort of the tone the whole thing just comes together so well in these um in these songs so i just uh i just love this piece yeah, listeners, we did a near music special some time ago. I haven't got the number to hand, but if you search our back catalogue or just search the internet for Kane and Rinse near, you'll find everything we've done probably about near near automata and its music. Or you can actually go to our website, and our search function works quite well. It's uh, it wants you to actually spell things correctly, but beyond that, it's pretty good. Um, yeah. Now the next game that uh, you've picked a piece from is a Nintendo in-house product that I don't know if I've ever heard of, which is quite unusual for me. Uh, so it's a an RPG from the, basically from the Zelda, well, kind of from the Zelda stable, but it's Nintendo R&D 2. Tell us about Marvelous. Yeah, and Marvelous. The music from it. Mm. Uh, apologies for anybody who speaks Japanese, but uh, Marvelous uh, Moitotsu no Takarajima, mm -hmm. uh, I believe, uh, which means uh, Marvelous Another Treasure Island. So it was a Super Famicom game, never released in the West. Sadly and not. And it's, uh, think of it sort of like uh, A Link to the Past, if there was less of an emphasis on fighting combat and more of an emphasis on puzzle solving nice. it's got again a little bit of a of an adventure game uh feel to it there especially there's these uh first person uh viewpoint scenes when you talk to somebody where it, it brings up a little bit of a sort of an adventure game like finger at a point and, and click on things uh. but it's it's very it's very unusual so um this is um ag aonuma's first yes. director position yeah so my understanding audition was for, audition for Zelda. Yes, that's right. That's my that's my understanding. The idea that that he um, liked Link to the Past and said, "This is great. I'd like to do something like this." Mm -hmm. And so um, I see sometimes when when this game is written about online that it's um, made in the same engine as Link to the Past. I'm not sure if you know games used engines in the same way no. back then. I'm not exactly Some sure. Some of the but, code, maybe. Yeah. Right. I think that was really what, what they're trying to say. So it does have a little bit of that feel to it in terms of the way it looks and plays. And, and then, on the other hand, there's something unique about the way it plays where you've got these three characters, these little uh, boy characters. You can switch between them at any time and you can separate them and they can they can they they have an inventory and they can go do things. Um, and sometimes you need one kid and sometimes you need the other because they've all got their special talents. And it's pretty neat. You can get a, a fan translation, um, you know, for That your was emulator. my next question. Right. right. So I could play this on my 
well, on my PC or potentially on my SNES Mini? Yeah, I'd recommend it. I, I don't see why not. I don't have one of the SNES minis, but I think I presume you can you can flash yeah, ROMs yep. to it like you could. Yeah. So yeah, there's um you get the you get the ROM, you get the the patch, and uh, yeah, it's it's a very good translation. Huh. I can't remember if I even mentioned. Now I, I'm hoping that when we covered the Zelda games many well several years ago, we did Ocarina obviously, and uh, and and then Aonima came on as director for the follow up Majora's Mask. Whether I mentioned this in that show, I you know I can't remember. Obviously, is the thing, but um, it seems like it's an absolutely key work in in that in the in the history of Zelda and Nintendo in that respect. That's a good point. I think if you're a, a completist and you want to sort of yeah trace that lineage, I think it's probably a must play. I would say that is it was yeah. in a very enjoyable game to play. Um, the the music was great. Uh, Yuichi Ozaki is a the, the composer is a man yep. who is not doesn't seem to be uh, extremely involved in composing for for games. He's got a he's got a couple, but mostly yep. he's a sound engineer for R and D two, and so he's you know he mm. does other stuff. But I, I thought the the soundtrack was excellent to this game. If you like that super Famicom Super Nintendo sound, yeah, yeah. Why did you pick this uh, piece in particular that we're going to hear the mission complete tune? I could have picked anything, but I think that this piece I like because you get it when um, each sort of section of the game, when you've completed the the goal, and it's got this very sort of triumphant, happy music. And I think that something about the psychological effect of you know having triumphed over a section of the game uh, is mm. probably why uh, I tend to be favorably disposed toward this one. But I would say if you if you like this, go look up the soundtrack for the game. You'll find it easily on YouTube, and it's pretty enjoyable all the way through.
That was Yuchi Ozaki's Mission Complete Tune from Marvelous Mohitotsu no Takarajima. Something along those lines. Apologies. Japanese-speaking listeners. Uh, I've done a bit of practice with, uh, with some genuine Japanese people around, but um, it's very easy to slip up and get it wrong. Uh, however, we do try. So yeah, uh, Super Famicom 1996, hence I guess the main reason it didn't get translated is because it was already, we were already uh, transitioning into the, well we were already in the 32-bit CD era and the N64 was imminent so they didn't feel there was any mileage in bringing it to either even America let alone Europe. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a shame they never, uh, so for instance on the Wii U Virtual Console some about five years ago now. They finally released the original Earthbound or the original Mother as Earthbound Beginnings uh, with a translation. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that they could release this on the Switch Super Nintendo service with a fan, with a, you know, with a, a licensed, or well, well, they shouldn't have to license it because it's theirs, but they could <laughs> yeah. they could basically nick a, a translation and uh, and use it. Um, that would be a that would be a nice thing to do. They should. I don't know who needs to hear that, but that would be great. I, I read somewhere, and I, I couldn't source it properly because it was in Japanese that the the financial failure of the original Super Nintendo release of Earthbound might have been one of the reasons why they justified not bringing this over, which kind of right. stinks. Yeah. Mm, but that game has so much love for it, so much passion. Yes. Uh, more point and click coming up. This is a request from the community uh, from Ms. Knight, who we heard uh, one one of these picks from from a, on a previous show. But here's another selection from the Legend of Kyrandia, and this one is <laughs> sinisterly entitled "Fish Cream Parlor." <laughs>
Frank Klopaki showing his range there with Fish Cream Parlour. I, I mean, I haven't played the game, so I don't know. Dan, you're a point-and-click man uh, with a PC in this era. Did you play any of the Kyrandia games? I did. I played the first two. I haven't played the third one. Ah. I tried. Um, this was in the era where you had to pirate games like this in order to play them. They just they weren't available uh, anymore, and I was able to find the first two, and I was not able to, to ever find the third one. I liked the first two a lot. I only played each of them once, um, just because I, you know, that was a time when I was just exploring games. I have... Mm fond memories they were you know the music was good the the writing was cute and you know it was visually they looked very nice the gameplay was you know a little bit of that frustrating uh point and click stuff of the day but you know i, I sort of liked that so yeah that was great this one's an interesting game right? because malcolm's malcolm was the villain of the first game and not only uh, a villain but just a, a very nasty villain like super really? super villainous and, <laughs> and, and sort of you know evil uh yeah kind of um psychopath and then when they made this game it's from his perspective so they they retconned him a little bit you know they said oh he didn't do some of these things that he was uh, accused of and and even then some of the some of his actions from the first game i believe would be a little bit uh sort of strange so i was playing the first game knowing that he was going to be the hero of a third game eventually and was going jesus this guy you know <laughs> um but i love the the tune here that's got this sort of yeah. combination of of cartoon and also this old world european feel with accordion and the mandolin sound i just really like it yeah yeah it's, it's, it is interesting because um yeah obviously a lot of us think of westwood studios and we know that they made doom 2 and then they made command and conquer but it's easy to forget when we we, we covered uh their blade runner game uh, the 97 games uh not that long ago on on the cane and rinse podcast and it's easy to forget they actually had, you know, they'd very much cut their teeth on a bunch of point and click style games. They weren't just the RTS studio. They just so happened to come up with that genre um, or, mm. you know, or the game that would popularize that genre in, in Command and Conquer in, in around this time, actually. This, I, I guess this probably put paid to the Kyrandia series was them moving into CNC. Unless there was a book for, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is as far as, um, as far as anyone knows, all they made. Yeah. Wow. Uh, now, I, I really like this next pick because it reminds me of a show. I can't believe how long ago it was, but uh, I was lucky enough to have George Sanger on the podcast, The Fat Man, back in Sound of Play 117, which felt like a high number. But now we're <laughs> here on 265. Um, and I've in interviewed a load of lovely and incredibly talented composers. But George was just one of my favorite guests because he was just so... Uh, entertaining and warm and uh, forthcoming and generous with his time and yeah just uh, just a real fond memory um, and I am not like I w was not and I'm not like massively uh, au fait with all of his back catalogue I never had a DOS uh, uh, you know a CD PC kind of system so I never played the seventh guest so I uh, uh, the stuff that I knew was uh, he did a bit of NES stuff and and things like that but um but this was all kind of new to me when i when i made that show uh but i realized just yeah what a what a talent he is but also how he manages to inject and i, I see why uh why our ryan's such a fan because he loves the kind of fun horror and the seventh guest has genuinely the the, the tone of it is is that just that yeah that kind of it's scary but it's also fun right 
campy. And um, the thing about this game is that if you if you look into its legacy now, it's not considered to be one of the games from the era that's held up the best. No. Um, you know, it, it was considered to be one of these uh, CD-ROM sellers, right? If you got, a, if you yes. had a CD-ROM, if you were certainly if you owned a store, a computer store, and you wanted to show uh, how cool that um, uh, CD-ROM technology was, you put on the Seventh Guest and. It's got this, uh, the cursor was this beckoning skeletal finger that was animated. Like, that was cool. And, you know, these kind of static, um, pretty backgrounds, and, and those were cool. And um, I have to stick up for the gameplay a little bit because, um, so basically the gameplay is it's a point-and-click game where you traverse from a first-person perspective, and then the puzzles themselves uh, sort of unlock more areas of the mansion in a sort of arbitrary way. You, you you finish a puzzle and then all of a sudden a room is unlocked. Um, and maybe sometimes you see a little uh, a video with uh, uh, some ghosts. Uh, ghosts again, right? Full motion video uh, ghosts. And um, the puzzles are all like uh, sort of like these board game puzzles or like these, you know, like you would see in an activity book, right? These kind of or, or like sort of old style um, classic puzzles. And okay, so... You know, that hasn't held up all that well in terms of, you know, cohesive, uh, you know, narrative and gameplay. And yet, if you go on the App Store, there's all kinds of, you know, what are called now casual adventure games that use this exact same format, right? Sometimes throwing in a hidden object adventure in the in the mix. So I think this is a game, um, I'm not sure how many people really discuss this direct lineage, but that really does uh, survive in some sense uh, through those sort of casual adventures that are still very popular today with a certain segment of uh i would say the casual gaming audience right yeah are you sort of do you mean the like the pixel hunt kind of games or the 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 scan the object kind of yeah some of of some of those exactly and you know they um i there was a time when i first got my smartphone that i was really into these because a lot of them were free at the time so i used to mess around with them and some of them do have hunt you know, sort of, yeah, find the object like a, you know, I spy sort of, or uh, whatever it's called. Um, but then there's um, this, uh, another aspect of those type of games are the you know, very, very light um, uh, inventory puzzle uh, yeah. sort of things. And, and then these, these logic puzzles or, you know, these kind of, uh, yeah, brain teaser sort of puzzles. And uh, sometimes a lot of these games don't even have the the hidden objects at all. They just they just rely on these very seventh guest like puzzles that sort of right. arbitrarily open areas. And so, yeah, that's um, it's still out there. I, I I read somewhere that um, that female gamers uh, are, are a big portion of the audience who who buys this type of game. Mm-hmm. And um, I I mean you know, I haven't seen any direct data uh, to support that but i will say that um a lot of the protagonists in these games are female which you know okay. is something and i know that uh, a lot of european studios make these games so yeah they're they're still out there um yeah. this you know this this is an interesting soundtrack if you put the the cd rom into a cd player it will play a so-called seventh guest soundtrack but yeah. in fact what that is um is like i would say sort of companion pieces to the actual game music so um i, I wouldn't say most of it um appears in the game uh, maybe some of it does but a lot of them are are songs sort of with vocals um mm. and that's what i kept finding when i was trying to look up this piece um uh, so th- they're really cool if you're into that sort of thing and, and i am um 
there's a song called The Game on there, which uh, has the same, this the seventh guest melody, I would call it, this motif that appears in a bunch of different ways throughout the different uh, actual gameplay. And it shows up as a tango and it you know, shows up in different ways. And one of the ways that it shows up is um, in this, uh, this piece that I've selected. And one of the reasons that I, I like this, first of all, I like the melody, um, but the melody is very similar at least the first five notes of the melody are very similar to an old um a hebrew tune um a lee a lee which uh you know starts off with the same sort of and um so every time i would you know i had a i had a jewish upbringing right so i would sit in synagogue and i would i would hear this song and i would think of the seventh guest um which is kind Mm -hmm. of uh probably not what what uh they were trying to evoke right this is this is written by you know, a World War II resistance fighter, uh, the yeah, original yeah. poem, the original poem, right? And then the the um, there was an Israeli composer, uh, uh, David Zahavi, who uh, actually set it to music in the forties. So that's not really uh, supposed to be the association, <laughs> but there I was, right? <laughs> that's so, what happens. That's music for you, yeah. exactly. So uh, yeah, I just have a I have a fondness for this this melody, uh, and, and this is I think the the purest form of the melody as it shows up in the game, just throughout one of these puzzles in the game. downstairs puzzles as opposed to upstairs puzzles exactly by george sanger the fat man from the seventh guest not currently available on steam i notice and uh, i'm sort of surprised they haven't i know we've seen sort of remasters or re-releases of games like night trap and some of the kind of the cd rom era 
in inverted commas classics. I'm surprised we haven't seen a seventh guest for the Switch or yeah, it's a shame. Uh, it has happened on iOS and and Mac OS, I think, but um, but yeah, not the consoles for whatever reason. Maybe I don't know. Would there be interface issues or uh, is it just that all the FMV is only available in super grainy source? I, I think maybe to do an FMV re-release now, you need uh, access to the original kind of um, recordings yeah. and, and whatever else. There that might, might be, be it. Yeah. Mm. But yes, don't forget. As I say, we. Uh, had George Sanger on the podcast Sound of Play 117 and we also had an interview extra with Ryan talking to George Sanger and Timothy Knox uh, so seek that out too our penultimate track in this Sound of Play is a request from our friend Ben Ben Cartledge or One Credit Ben who uh, recently as we'll hear went travelling on my recent adventure to the island of mutual combat I took my Mega Drive Mini with me to kill the quarantine time as best I could my first few days were spent playing a lot of Dune 2. There we are again. But it wasn't until I booted up Fantasy Star 4 that I fell into a, uh, I really fell into a big cycle of shutting the curtains, making tea and adventuring into Motavia until I could go and explore the outside world, that is. Or so I thought. When I finally got my wristband after my COVID test came back negative, I made a quick walk outside the hotel to get a bit of sun and say hello to my colleagues before inevitably heading back to my room. This 16-bit world with many fascinating pitfalls and storylines had captured my imagination and this particular song from the super-challenging Air Castle ranks among its finest moments. Dungeon Arranged 2 by Izuno Numata uh, and or Masaki Nakagaki. So challenging for my stupid English palette. Uh, Fantasy Star 4 from Sega on the Mega Drive in 1993, along an epic sci-fi RPG series uh, that uh, it's quite easy to get hold of and play versions of the entire lineage. Now, I think the the first game is, is as a Master System game is available as a uh, Sega Ages title on Switch, for example, mm -hmm. and the others are on various compilations. Uh, but yes, going back to Ben's story there, uh, for those who don't know, our friend Ben is a MMA judge. Uh, he, you know, does the scoring. He sits by the ringside of the, the side of the the octagon, I think. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, not my scene, man. Uh, and uh, and decides whether people have hurt each other legally and sufficiently to um, <laughs> to score points or something. I think it's basically like Street Fighter, uh, but uh, without the fire and stuff. But I don't know. But hilariously, the uh, the the owner of of the MMA, as I understand it, recently became Zach from Dead or Alive. In that he actually did set up a fight island uh, where people could travel basically to get things up and running again during the pandemic. So it involved people like Ben and all the combatants flying out there, having multiple COVID tests and uh, and getting on, getting their scrap on, which is okay. kind of a weird a, a situation that was almost unimaginable, you know, this time last year, um, as I guess has have many things. <laughs> okay so that that backstory is i think yeah. critical to understanding uh uh yeah ben's uh ben's little blurb here i yeah. get it now yeah island of mutual combat that's amazing um, yeah yeah what a weird what a weird life he leads <laughs> uh and yes also i know it, as well as playing fantasy star 4 um as always being ben he completed ghouls and ghosts at least seven or eight times on one yeah. life because he's he's insane yeah. uh and obsessed with princess print print uh nice. so you said dan you missed the 16-bit era and as you also said like sometimes some of those games are hard to come back to i think especially the ps1 and n64 era we've talked about many times not saying there's no games worth playing on those systems now far from it but sometimes they've got the biggest barriers in terms of uh, visuals and controls uh maybe more maybe the the 16-bit era is actually where uh, it's easier to go back to than than the early CD Polygon era. So, um, so you, you were a SNES Super Famicom guy, were you? Yes, or? absolutely. I, mi- I missed right. the thirty-two bit era, but sixteen bit was my was my yes, jam. Sorry. You know, eight, yeah. eight and sixteen, and uh, I really love that era. I did not have a, a Sega Genesis growing up, but um, I've always been interested in the Fantasy Star games, and I recently went back to the Sega Ages collection release of Fantasy Star. Oh, very I, good. I really liked it. It's it's a great version, um, simply yes. because they make the game playable to modern audiences, and uh, you know the encounter rate maybe, and you know the mm. leveling up yes. is faster, and the drops and everything, um, and a very very pleasant way to play that game. Uh, this this Fantasy Star Four track is actually originally from the first game. It's a dungeon uh, theme from the first game, and this is a great version of it. So I haven't actually played. Uh, the second, third, or fourth games no. in the series, and I was holding out for a Sega Ages release of them, and then we recently found out that well, maybe the Sega Ages releases are not going to keep coming. No, so the, there's there's good and bad news on this. Uh, maybe you're already aware, Dan. You can get these games on the Switch if that's if that's your preference, but they're part of the Mega Drive or Genesis compilation. Right. The emulation is not as beautiful as M2 Sega Ages. Uh, works and there's not as there's not as many features or modern quality of life tweaks so you could if i think two three and four all on there although i'd have to double check that uh but yeah so there is a way of getting them and and making them available but you won't necessarily have quite as good an experience as you did with the sega ages version yeah i see they're on the iphone as well and you know i I Mm. thought before i realized that sega ages would be coming out with stuff i thought well maybe i'll try this out and then i said well maybe i should wait and now i'm like "Uh, yeah maybe i i don't know i just don't know if i want to fool around with a with an iphone version of it you know it's got the ads and everything but Mm. maybe worth looking into yes or just you know 
start going down the insane original hardware collector's route, get yourself a really expensive cathode ray tube, a Genesis that plays all regions of games, <laughs> I could, I could. component cables, RGB scarts, and, and get, get buried in that way. But uh, yeah, life doesn't always allow us those luxuries. No, uh, but yeah, those, uh, those fantasy star games are all on our big list listener for uh, someday on the Cane and Rinse podcast. But uh, who knows? There's, uh, there's a lot to get through. So we've got one more pick, which is uh, from a JRPG on the other, the other machine, as it was back then, the other 16 bits. Uh, but uh, before that, uh, well, I want to thank Dan for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Of course. Dan. It's been my pleasure. Do you have anything other than the article that you've written for us so far? Luigi Fears on canarince.com. Uh, anything social media wise or any other projects that you would like to tell our listeners about? Yeah, I do a bunch of things. It depends on what you're interested in, what the listeners are interested to. So um, most directly related to gaming, I suppose. Um, I've had to pick up a side job as uh, editor and proofreader just to, to make ends meet. And so um, I do have a, a bit of a business proofreading video games. I, I think it's something that... Uh, you know, can really make or break a game, right? You know, bad translation or, you know, even even just commas not in the right place can kind of make a make a game look not professional. And so it's a service. And if anyone's interested in that, you can find me on Twitter at Blue Weasel Breath. Uh, there's no E in, in the blue there. Um, and let's see. Okay, so I'm the president of what's called the Applied Evolutionary Psychology Society. So if anyone's interested in evolutionary psychology, the, you know, the study of how evolutionary forces have shaped our brain and behavior, and more critically, how it can be used to um, uh, illuminate domains of practical human applications, such as education or mental health or public policy, things like that. You can, you can look up the Applied Evolutionary Psychology Society, or APES for short, A-E-P-S. We're all over the internet. Um, I got another science nonprofit if anyone's interested yeah. uh, in um, yeah the psychtable.org is a is a online database we're we're building it now we're we're in the sort of final stages of building this uh, the idea is to have a scientific resource where people can go and look up basically the different uh, mechanisms of, that the human brain has right so the idea is that you know, our brain is not just one general purpose computer, but there are mm -hmm. particular systems that do particular things. You know, we have uh, dedicated systems for color vision, for example, dedicated systems devoted to, you know, thirst and appetite and things like that, right? And mm -hmm. there's there's some scientific uh, uh, argument about how many of these dedicated systems do we have? Is our entire brain work like this? Are we a bunch of uh, tiny dedicated systems? Are there general purpose, um, you know, uh, general purpose calculators in the brain that sort of do a whole bunch of things. And um, so this website uh, allows people to to go and, uh, you know, from a scientific perspective, use uh, data and publications to really argue out these points, um, to submit, you know, if, if you feel like there's evidence that, for example, we have an evolved cheater detection mechanism in our human brain, you know, you can, you can submit evidence to that, to that point. And then mm. if, if you are a learner or a lay person or a journalist or whatever, and would like to sort of take a look at what systems that have been supported that the human brain has, you can, you can go and you can 
You can check out all the evidence for it in a very easy to digest way. You can see how much uh, evidence is there, how much evidence challenges the existence of these systems, what the underlying neurological basis is. And this was uh, created to really solve the issue of there's no real central resource for the uh, evolutionary behavioral sciences. There's no periodic table of the elements you could just go look up or, no, um, right. you know, no, no Gray's anatomy, right? So if you want to really know, well, what do we know about the human brain um, mm. and what what is the human brain evolved to do specifically? You really would have to um, have access to a, a giant research database, uh, mm. you know, across all institutions and, you know, have a, have a giant library and be able to read all this stuff. And it's just not practical. And so this is, it's basically an open science endeavor, psychtable.org. Um, so if anyone's interested in that, take a look. And finally, if, if any listeners are interested in, um, or have a uh, single sided hearing loss, I do have a, a company, uniheadphones.com. That's Y U N I headphones. Uh, dedicated to uh yeah single-sided stereo headphones so this so you could listen to stereo sort of what approximates stereo with a single oh, ear wow what a great idea yeah. yeah i have a friend who has uh i think 40 percent hearing in one ear and uh, uh and somewhat more in the other it might be useful yeah, some 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 of our customers do have uh, yeah just low hearing in one ear and still mm. just want to or some people just want to work out or, or work and want to keep their other ear free and so yes um yes. Thank you, thank you, listeners, for indulging me that uh, series of plugs. I just didn't know what to choose, so I thought I might it's as well throw them all on there. Yeah. It's all good stuff. Uh, yeah, what an interesting bunch of things you do and know about. Uh, thank you. <laughs> right. So, yeah, this last pick is from a game that I, when I was demolishing JRPGs in the, it was in the period after I first played secret of mana i think uh and and zelda i can't remember exactly which order things happened but i think secret of mana was my first yeah it was my first jrpg and i loved it and so for the next kind of year or two i was sort of getting hold of all the ones that i could on the mega drive and super nintendo that that are being released in europe which uh, which wasn't that many at the time but one of them was a game called illusion of time which had already come out in Japan and America as, uh, well, Illusion of Gaia is the American name. I can't actually remember what the, the Japanese name is, but um, I really enjoyed this game. So it's by Enix, uh, sorry, by Quintet for Enix in Japan, released by Nintendo elsewhere. Now, I, I know I played this, like, I was I was really demolishing them at this point. I was, like, playing them day after day, and, mm-hmm. and it was only taking me, like, a matter of, days or or maybe a week to finish a lot of these kind of 25 30 hour rpgs i have the vaguest recollection of this uh, of this piece that you've selected for us but have you got similarly fond memories of of this uh, illusion of gaia world yeah this was one that um i remember that my father bought this game for me he found it somewhere and yes. gave it to me in the car one day when he picked me up from school from i don't know fourth grade surprise or presents are the best i know and and um my parents have never been uh, ones to pick appropriate gifts for me. It just never happens. Um, so this was uh, this was great. This was you know this was right up my alley. Um, yeah. I loved it, and um, I I put a lot of time into it. I remember it took up a lot of my um, mental energy. I remember there was one particular night when I was playing. Anyone who's old school remembers the the experience of it's time to go to bed. You haven't found a save point. Yeah. You don't want to lose all your progress. And so you either keep playing or you stop and lose your progress. So it's getting later and later into the night. And this happened to be a very a scene that for me at the time as a kid, 
had a lot of emotion. There was a lot of pathos going yeah. on there, and then mm-hmm. they were stuck at sea, and then you know they they were they were picked up on a ship, and mm-hmm. and all these things happened. And then I had to turn off the game, and I just remember having these very vivid, maybe almost feverish dreams about this game. And for some reason, so so this game, I guess, sort of was burned into my memory. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I had a great time with it. And I um, I remember this, uh, this boss track. I remember actually a few years ago, the, the track was stuck in my head and I couldn't remember what game it was. And I knew it was a final boss music. And you, there's really nothing you could do about that unless you have a lot of friends who are, you know, really knowledgeable in, in music. And I guess, you know, I have this community, but I would have had to hum it to somebody. Um, yeah. So I, I really came across it again accidentally and went, oh, that's it, Illusion of Gaia. It is um, sort of balls to the wall. Like, you know, it's boss music yes. when it kicks in. And then it does something interesting and then it pulls back. It's almost got this um, sort of night on bald mountain kind of, of thing where you just kind of uh, soft, sort of symphonic, still eerie, still ominous um, feel to it. And then if you uh, if you let it cycle again, if you don't beat the the boss within four minutes or whatever, boom, it's back around again to that main motif. So I just think this one's a killer. Amazing, yeah. So uh, you obviously got to the end as I did. Uh, I remember the thing is about some of the JRPGs I played then compared to some of the sort of games I got stuck in later on. Um, they they always felt like they were quite completable. <laughs> like um, they yeah. didn't seem to demand quite so much of of the player. Like you would, I just felt like I was kind of you know going through having a good adventure occasionally coming up against a tricky moment but being able to kind of work my way through it i didn't i, I feel like some of the, the final fantasy games for instance like really relied on you sort of seeking out ultimate weapons and um absolutely maximizing your strategies and i guess that's what happened as kind of the t- time went on and and the fans got the fans of the genre got more hardcore and so the games kind of reflected that back at them Right. This is a um one of the action RPGs if anyone's interested mm. um in the sort of the Zeldas and the the Secret of Manas yes. and so and it doesn't require grinding um because no. there's there's a finite number of enemies in the game. That's and right. uh yeah. for the most part there I guess there might be a few uh enemies that come back but really um you beat an area and that's it. And mm. so you know it's not a matter of like, am I am I leveled up enough? Yeah. You know, do I do I need to grind for? You just you never have to do that. And so I think that one of, is one of the things that you're alluding to about this game in particular. Yes. So the demands yeah. are very clear. You beat the enemies, you keep moving. So yeah, I'd have been. I think this yeah, came out in late April '95. So I'd have been uh, 22 years old when I played this. How old were you? May I dare I ask? Oh, uh, I probably would have been maybe 11 ish. Yeah, that makes sense. And final question before we close out with this tune did you go on and play the fabled follow-up Terranigma oh yes uh, that was another um, early SNES emulator game that I really had right. to try to find and I played it once I thought it was pretty good I, I would probably need to spend more time on it this was the the days when um, I would emulate on a computer using a keyboard and this was you know ZSNES or whatever uh, the emulator yeah, was at sure. the time right which was yeah. fine it was great yeah. but you know it's not the same experience no. using a keyboard it felt it felt a little weird it looked a little weird yeah. um, I remember some grinding in that game I may be maybe wrong about that but I remember that I, I remember just fighting wolves for quite a while um, so that's that's what I think of every time I think about the game I, I have it on my new uh, sort of Raspberry Pi emulator um, and would like to go back to it at some point and see if I can have a more uh, more up-to-date experience with it because it it's it was neat i i do have just a general positive memory of it 
but never, uh, yeah, just n- never, never remember anything else when I think about the game other than grinding wolves. <laughs> Grind, grinding with wolves. Yeah, whereas I always have this sense from Illusion of Time or Gaia uh, that I, I always remember this uh, lovely seaside uh, place with with seagulls going overhead and twiddling my magical staff to make columns dance around and yeah yeah stuff. yeah <laughs> right the I flute should, right you, you fight with a flute in this flute, game which is really funny it. i thought it was a, yeah I was, I was, in my head it was it was a staff but yeah it's a kind of it, it's a yeah it's a, it's a two and one he so he, he he plays the flute and then he, he beats the, the the crap out of people with it awesome it's great that's perfect jrpg fodder right there all right thanks again dan uh i hope you'll come back and see us sometime soon love to and we'll leave you listener with dark gaia battle by yasuhiro kawasaki from illusion of gaia or time if you're european or australian and we'll see you next time on sound of play (laughs) 